Well, good morning. <clears throat> nice to see you guys. I hope you are doing well. Today, as we move towards a Christmas service, I wanted to talk with you all about the moment where Mary finds out that she is going to be with Chop and that she's, she gets the good news, so to speak. Because I want to talk about this idea of how important hope is. And to begin that, uh, I spent a lot of time at the grocery store. It's one of my favorite places. And so I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of my stories happen to have me at a grocery store. And so I was at a grocery store. Um, and it's holiday season, so lines are crazy. And people have carts filled with food because they're shopping for the apocalypse. And it's like the woman in front of me is piled up, you know, the, the cart is piled up way over the top. So I'm, I'm just like not going anywhere for a while. I'm going to be there. And so I do what I, I think many of you maybe do, or maybe it's just me. I don't know. Um, I start looking at all those tabloids and all the magazines that are just sitting in the kiosk in front of me waiting in line. I don't like read through them. I just sort of scan the headlines because I need to look at something, you know. And so I look at the very first one and it's a Time magazine. On the cover of it is uh, an American flag. And it, but it's like all discombobulated. Like the stars are a little off, the lines are a little wonky. And it looks like somebody took like a black pen and just scribbled over the top of it kind of weird. And I think it's just trying to, to look confusing, so to speak. And then underneath it, the only word on the front of the cover just said democracy. And I looked at that and I said, well, you know, I was just like, oh, wow. And figured probably had something to do with our elections. I don't know. I didn't read it. Uh, I just saw it. And then right next to it, big, bold letters, another magazine. And the big, bold letters at the top of this one is anxiety. So that if you didn't have it before, you do now, right? Like just big, bold letters, anxiety. And then it says the looming mental health crisis or something like that underneath it. And I was just like, ooh. Well, there's that one too. Next one, next to it, or beneath it or whatever, is a, is a tabloid. I don't even remember what it is. I couldn't tell you the name. There's just these horrible pictures of these celebrities, like six celebrities' faces. It looks like they found them in the morning when nobody knew, you know, like that type of moment. They're terrible photos. And the big yellow caption on it just says, who will die next? I know, that's what I thought. I was just like, gosh. And, and I, I look and it's something along the line, underneath it's something along lines of like depression, addiction, and the word exposed, always the word exposed. It's always there, right? Like it's that one. And so I'm just standing there, minding my business, staring at this. And I hear a woman behind me, like sarcastically laugh. She goes, ha, pick your problem. Right? And I, I know, I, I kind of liked it. I, I started laughing with her for, I was like, well, yeah. And I look back at her and I go, you know, it seems that way. Sure seems that way, doesn't it? And she goes, you know, I stopped reading those. I, I had to stop reading most of that because it's all just so depressing. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I don't think I'm going to be picking up any of these today either. And then she said a phrase to me that I have heard so many times in the last couple of years that previously, I, if I'm honest, I don't remember hearing very much at all, if at all. Like I'm just trying to leave space that somebody probably said it, but I don't really remember it at all. She says this phrase though, very common. Some iteration of this has been said so many times to me. Here's the phrase. She looks and she goes, you know, I think this is the worst it's ever been. That's the phrase she said to me. And I didn't have to ask, can you tell me what you mean by it's? Like, I didn't have to look at her and go, so can you define that? Like, can you be more specific? Because you just made a really bold statement. And what exactly are you talking about? Because I knew what she's talking about. Some of you guys, like I saw you nodding your head. Some of you guys have heard this same thing. You felt this same thing. You've said that like somebody around you, or this has been a topic of conversation at some point. Like, the, I, I was wondering if this was just me. In last service, people were like, no, this is not just you. Like, yes, this is all over the place. I feel this. I hear this. I didn't have to ask her, what are you talking about? 
And the reason why is because I knew what she was talking about. She's talking about life. She's talking about the world. She's talking about just all of this, her experience in this world with how things are going and all that stuff. She makes a statement. I think this is the worst that it's ever been. And if I'm honest, I have heard that again so many times in the last couple of years. Now, the first time that I ever heard somebody say something like that, right? Or some iteration. Sometimes people look at me and go, and man, this is the worst it's been in my lifetime. Or I don't know that it's ever been this bad. Some kind of thing like that. The first time that I heard that, it was such a, a striking thing to say. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a big statement. Is that true? Because that's how my brain works. I always like just, I'm like, is that true? And part of me started to get a little bit argumentative as if to go like, well, is it really? I started thinking through history, different moments. Somebody came to me and said, we have never been more divided as a people. And they were talking about Americans. And I just remember thinking, is it? Because we had a civil war. And 600,000 people were killed by their fellow Americans in that civil war. And that was a really big deal. If you take that based on the same population ratio that we now have, that would equate to about 6 million people being killed by their fellow Americans now. I mean, that's pretty significant. That's a big deal. So is it? Sometimes people will come to me and say, we've never had it where it's been more morally corrupt or more morally awful than it is right now. And I used to take a moment in those particular occasions to actually go, well, you know, in Jesus' day, it was pretty crazy. And I would say, in the, you know, in the first century, it was actually permitted, not just permitted, but like completely okay. It was just fine. You could leave a baby, a newborn infant of any, you know, or even up to a toddler to a child, basically up until the kid could produce and actually like produce some kind of monetary income or benefit to the family or something like that. It was completely permissible to leave a child and abandon them in a city square at this one particular location. They were left there to either die of the elements, freeze to death, starve to death or something, or be picked up by slave trade to be taken away for the rest of their lives. And that wasn't frowned upon, looked down upon. They weren't seen as real people because they couldn't produce yet. It was completely and utterly acceptable. And go, that used to happen. Isn't that crazy? And I go, and you know, in Jesus' day, it was actually really common for everybody to participate in temple prostitution. And the reason that they would do that is because <clears throat> it was part of just an act of worship, but that's actually what you needed to do to be able to participate in commerce. So if you did not participate in like temple prostitution at that particular point in time, in this particular era, you would often be cut off from the marketplace itself. This is why when you read that in the first century that they cared for the orphans and that they band together with, and like pooled their resources together, it's not just because they were like, that would be a nice thing to do. They had to do this to make it work because if you stop participating in this, how will you survive? So that was crazy. I was like, I don't know that it's like worse, better, but man, that was, that's, we don't have that now. That's different. I used to argue with people whenever I would hear this phrase. And it was just because, man, that's a big statement. And I'd want to produce facts and statistics and different things to go, is it though? Is that really true? And you know what I've realized? I've realized, stop arguing. It's like, I'm, it's a thing I'm working on for my life. <laughs> The reason why, though, is not just because I don't think that that's right or wrong. It's because I don't think that's actually what people are saying. I have found that people don't actually care about loads of statistics or whether or not it's incrementally better or not or worse or things. What, it, what people are really saying, what that woman was really saying to me in the checkout line at the grocery store on that particular day is something akin to this. It has become harder and harder to hold hope. It's the idea that when I look at my right now, when I perceive the world around me, However it is, based on my experience in these things, there's just something about it where 
the outcome, the future, this thing that I think I'm moving towards, this good and beautiful thing pulling me forward, it's harder to hold on to hope right now than it has been for a while. And whether that needs to be statistically real or true or verified, like there's just a piece where that becomes the net experience. Whether that's based on a bunch of facts or not, that it's just the sense that you get from people around you. So many of us find ourselves in this place and our culture finds ourselves in this place where hope is a little harder to hold on to. Now, I brought this up. I taught through this this morning before anybody even got here to just Glenn and Seth and a couple other people. And they usually give feedback on Sunday mornings for this. And they paused and they were like, Ryan, why do you care about this? And I realized, I thought there was like a self-evident piece that for me is so important. They were like, you need to say it out loud. So this is my attempt to, to do that. Here's why this is so important. Here's why the idea that struggling to hold hope is actually a really significant problem that, that we as people in a church need to address. And it's because we believe in a God who's a part of this world, who's in us and through us and with us and still moving and loving people and doing things by its very nature. There's something about hope that's infused into the human condition when it comes to believing in God and to following Christ. And it's massively important. And what most of us end up kind of falling into or slipping into, myself absolutely included in this, is we get to Christmas time and we're like 2,000 years ago, the hope of the world came and it was beautiful. There was a star, there was a manger, there were things and it was amazing. Let's sing the songs, let's do the thing. Hot cocoa cookies, all of it. Let's make it happen, celebrate, right? Hope of the world. And then it's like, okay, we get to Easter. And it's like, and back then too, he lived and he died and he rose again. And that was back then. And then God like went away and he left the world to rot. And we're just trying to save some souls and get out of Dodge. And we laugh, but like also more honest than we think sometimes. I think if we're really candid with one another, it's difficult. Hope becomes this thing. That is a vital component to life. No, God didn't, didn't just bail on us. You're not just like sitting here destitute and absent. There's something, God even still, even here, even now has great plans and desires for you. There is love and grace and power and Christ and the Holy Spirit moving in and through you. God still desires to love the world and that fundamentally is tethered to hope. A hope that he's pulling us forward. A hope that this might be my right now, but it's not my every day or my tomorrow. A hope that wherever the world might be, that God's still in it, loving it, seeking to move it forward. Do you see why it's so essential? Why it's such a big deal that when we as a culture find ourselves holding, are struggling to hold on to hope that maybe the group that needs to lead the way in this is churches because we have something really beautiful that we cherish to hold on to. And so I care a ton about this. And I found myself wanting to speak to this this morning. And you know, I know it feels like this is a really unique situation or era or time or whatever that maybe we all find ourselves in, whether you are looking at this globally or just as a country, all these different pieces, just the way things can kind of feel at times. But the reality is, is this is not new. And what I mean by this is this struggle to hold on to hope is is an age-old thing. In fact, this is really predominant in your Bibles as well. I want you to see this uh, here as we go to talk about it today. Let me give you some background in case for whatever reason, maybe you haven't read your Bible a, a bunch or, or even for those of you that have, maybe you just don't quite see the story of it all and how this works. Your Bibles are divided into two major sections. 
two major sections. There's the Old Testament, and then there is the New Testament. Now there's a bunch of books that are divided up within there, but really it's like these two big chunks, right? There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. Okay, so in the Old Testament, God expresses this desire that he wants to have this relationship of faith and trust with people. That's what he's wanted all along. We're told that in Romans chapter four, when it alludes back to Abraham. It's like, even back in Abraham, it was always by relationship through faith. That's where justification came from. That's where, that's how God wants us to relate to him. And so God goes to a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, way, way back when, this is like the patriarch of Judaism. He says, Abraham, I want to do something special for the world, but I want to start it through you and your descendants. And I want you guys to become a blessing to everybody. Essentially, I want to start this faith relationship of trust and dynamic with you guys. And I want this to grow for the world. I want this to become the dynamic. This is what I, I want to see happen. And so they endeavored to live in this relationship. And you see this through the Old Testament, but you know what? That's really hard. Anybody who's been in any kind of real relationship for a long time knows that sometimes it's easier to follow a contract or a system of rules than it is to just be in a relationship. And it's because it can feel uncertain at times. It can feel kind of weird. And so the people began to crave people to lead them or prophets or rulers or things to essentially point the way and dictate how things should go. And they wanted rules and laws and commands so that they could know that if they did these things and they followed these things, then they were good and right with God. And so they start to just take on this system of rules and things of religious code and all of this stuff as they're following that. Meanwhile, they're trusting priests and prophets and kings to lead them forward. The whole Old Testament is kind of an up and down roller coaster of a story of people really being crushed under the weight of all of that. Sometimes it feels like it's going great. And other times it feels like it's absolutely just a mess. And then it gets pulled back in and then it gets pushed back out. And it's just this roller coaster of humanity. All the while, this desire of God exists in the background or the foreground, depending on how you want to look at it. Or he wants a real relationship with people to live in this faith kind of dynamic with them. And Amidst the sea of complexity that occurs, there's these promises that get made along the way, these really beautiful promises that come out through the Old Testament about one day, someone's gonna come and enter into the world, into our midst. And this, this person that gets referred to as the Messiah, the Savior, this person's gonna come and they're gonna change the world. They're gonna turn this thing upside down. They're gonna, all the things that kind of grind and grate and don't feel like it's quite right, they're gonna make it right again. They're gonna unite people in this new and special kind of relationship with God. And not just a Jewish family that grows into like a large nation, but the whole world for everybody. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's this waiting with expectation amidst the sea of complexity that is our lives that one day, one day, someone's gonna come and kind of make this right again. Someone's gonna come and restore relationships. Someone's gonna come and do this thing. And they didn't just see this the way we would see this. We would be like, you mean like a great religious leader to start a new religion or denomination? No, they meant it like, like our lives. They, this person was gonna come and rule over them. This person would replace governments. This person would replace all things. This would be a kingdom that reigns forever for all of our lives. Hope is on the horizon. Who's coming with me? And they'd wait. And they waited. The Old Testament is a story of them waiting. And when your Old Testament ends, this is what's weird for us. When our, when our Old Testament ends, we turn the page and we're like, hey, Matthew, New Testament, right? Like five seconds later, you just kind of turn the thing and you're like, look at that. Now for a new story, new, new Testament. Okay, we're moving forward. When, when the Old Testament ends, they had been waiting and waiting for a very long time. And all of a sudden, something significant happens where there are 400 years of silence 
between the Old and the New Testament. If you're like, well, that's interesting, 400 years, longer than we've been a nation. I want you to imagine that the United States of America simply does not exist. You really can't wrap your head around it if you're here, if you've lived here long enough. It gets hard for you to even think in that span of time. Longer than we have even been a nation. They wait 400 years. Now, up to that point, and this is what I mentioned, there were prophets and kings, there was scripture being written. There was always somebody pointing the way forward, somebody writing the way forward, somebody forecasting what would happen. They had things that they could embrace and read and be led by. During those 400 years, there was no prophet. There was no king. There was no new piece of scripture being written. 400 years, friends, where it just felt like waiting in silence, holding on to hope that one day hope was gonna arrive in the form of the Messiah. One day someone's gonna come and set the record straight. One day this whole thing's gonna be restored and made right again for 400, did I mention 400 years? Isn't that crazy? This is what happens when the Old Testament ends. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that you look around you and you see your world and it just feels like things are adrift. I want you to imagine that you look around you and you see your world and there's a part of you that just goes, I don't feel like this should be this way. I feel like there's a, a kind of brokenness to this or a struggle to this that needs to be corrected or there's something in this that needs to be restored and you have this deep sense about it with you. And then I want you to imagine that you also are holding, you're seeing that, but you're simultaneously holding onto this promise. Think about it for yourself. Don't just imagine them. Imagine you're holding onto this promise and you're going like, well, but someone's gonna come and change this. God's told us that this is, this is good and beautiful and we're headed somewhere and, and he's got plans for this thing and he wants to love the world forward in this way. We're gonna be united in relationship in this amazing way. And so you are seeing your world and you're holding onto this beautiful kind of hope and then you just watch generation after generation come, live and die and wait and come and live and die and wait and come and live and die and wait. And it starts to feel like a story passed down from a story passed down from a story passed down. And now you're sitting in your very real life looking around you at the tail end of 400 years going, what are we doing here? If you're a human being like me or like any normal human being, you know what you're gonna to start to find yourself thinking after 400 years as a people waiting? You're gonna have thoughts that pop in your head like, why bother? I mean, there was a guy like a lot of years ago that pretended like he was the Messiah and then he got killed. There was another person that everybody thought was the guy, they got killed. There've been regime after regime after regime that's come in here, nothing's changed. Why bother? What's the point? Right? Isn't this how we are as people sometimes where when you've held on to hope for long enough and you still look at your circumstances and you look at the world around you and it's not changing, but you're still holding on to this thing, there's a part of you that finds yourself going, I don't know if I want to hold on to that the same way. I don't want to get my hopes up. Isn't that a thing we say? We actually begin to do what? Protect ourselves from hope? Because you don't want to look like an idiot. Or you don't want to be disappointed when your hopes get dashed. And it becomes really difficult to hold on to hope. See, you'd start to see people simply looking at life around them and saying, this is just how it is. I think holding hope feels a little impossible right now. It's a little difficult. It was at the tail end of those 400 years that we read the following passage. Take everything we've just talked about and now let's listen and read these words. Luke chapter one, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, 
The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Think of this, the angel of the Lord brings this news to Mary, shows up and says, greetings, O favored one, right? Greetings to you, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That's what he says. And my, my whole take is like, okay, so an angel shows up. That's super weird. That would be kind of scary. But man, this has got to be like one of the top five greetings you could get from an angel. Like on a list of things that could potentially happen at that particular point in time, this is pretty good. Greetings to you, oh favored one, the Lord is with you. Like that's a forecast for the future that like good things are coming your way. And when she hears this, what's her response? We would look and she's like, oh, good. Oh, thank you. Or, oh, that's amazing. Or what beautiful news do you might hold? No, what's her reaction? Think about what, she's, what happens here. I think it's bizarre until you make her human. It's interesting. The Bible says that she was greatly troubled and she wondered what this greeting might mean. Friends, this is not the way a person who's just excitedly, expectantly holding on to the hope that a Messiah is going to come reacts in a particular moment like this. This is the way a person reacts when they know what it is to wait for the other shoe to drop. This is the way a person reacts when they've got good and beautiful things in their future, when you're a 13-year-old girl, which was like full, full scale as far as like a woman goes at that point in time and she's betrothed to be married and she's got a bright future ahead of her and an angel shows up and she's like, oh no, what is this? What's about to happen? <laughs> this isn't celebration, hope and expectation. This is she's troubled and going, what does this mean? I remember when I was first working here at Casas, I was hired here as the assistant high school pastor. My boss was the high school pastor. He was a man named Jack Scholl, who is a youth minister for around here for a real long time. Um, and so my job was to essentially learn from Jack and, and just figure out how did he run the youth ministry and all the different pieces and, and, and lead into some of those things. Jack was moving into some other stuff around here. And so uh, it was kind of just, I guess, a test or a trial time to just see, okay, would I be the right kind of person to step in and lead the high school group for the future? So I was the assistant high school pastor. One of the big things that happened along the way was they're like, Ryan, we want you to just take charge of and lead this trip. This is yours. And I said, okay. So we took all of the students to Los Angeles in the month of November. It was a trip that we used to take a lot. Um, and, and this trip was bonkers. It was. This is a crazy trip. Like we, I changed it pretty quick after, afterwards because uh, here's what would happen. I want you to imagine that you're like a small group leader on this trip. Here's the itinerary. You show up at like midnight, 10 p.m., check in all the things. You load the bus. You ride like a red-eye bus ride, eight hours to LA. You stop for like a quick breakfast and then you open and close Knott's Berry Farm that entire day. And don't imagine that the bus is quiet and sleepy. This is a bus full of high school students who just got to hang out with each other for the first time in a while, right? That's the ride that you were on to go to Knott's Berry Farm. You open and close that place. Then you leave. You check into a hotel where you get a little bit of sleep. You eat a bunch of pizza and you try to put a bunch of kids to bed in a hotel room that needs lots of supervision, lots of things. Then the next morning, you wake up and you go to Magic Mountain, start to finish that day. When Magic Mountain's over, you get back in the bus and you drive home and then you get here and you're done. How many of you are like, yes. So many of you guys are like, that sounds like hell. Right? Because it's exhausting. It does. It, it was tiring. And so what would end up happening is you'd, you'd have all of these sleep deprived leaders and you're like, go be your best selves with the students. And they're just looking at you like, why did you do this to me? 
right? And that type of thing. And so we'd have conflict between students and leaders and nobody could ever talk quiet enough on that bus. And, and people were getting so mad and all this stuff. You finally get to Knott's Berry Farm. Okay, cool. The fun begins. Let's just go have a great day. We go to Knott's Berry Farm. A small group leader at one point comes running up to me and goes, Ryan, I need you quick. One of our students is getting arrested. They stole a wallet and they're being taken into like the back room in a place in Knott's Berry Farm and they need you to go do something. And I was like, they pickpocketed a wallet? And they were like, no, they stole it from a souvenir stand. Like they wanted a new wallet. And I was like, oh, I feel a lot better, but that's still not okay. Right? Still not good. Okay, let's go. And so I'm, I'm going to parts of Knott's Berry Farm I didn't know existed, down hallways I didn't even know were there. And I'm suddenly standing in the middle of a room with two security guards being huge and tough and trying to like chew out this student who's just terrified in a room in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I've got to now be like the temporary parental guardian. And I'm on the phone with, with his parents trying to broker this thing out and, and I don't make sure that they don't take him off and arrest him and, and all of this. Stuff. This is a nightmare, right? And finally, that's okay. And they're like, but he's got to stay with you. They didn't kick us out of the park. He's just got to stay with me. They're very gracious. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm responsible for you. You're with me all day. There's a series of other issues at the park that day. We don't need to get into it. We leave the park. And we go driving back to the hotel. The bus driver puts the wrong GPS address in. We go to the wrong hotel in like the wrong part of California, which if you drive in California is like, you know, that could mean we ended up in Egypt in terms of traffic time. It was awful. So we get there and the students are like, wait, this isn't our hotel. They haven't eaten dinner yet. We're supposed to have pizza waiting for us. And all of a sudden it's full-scale mutiny, not just from students, volunteers too, where everyone's like, you're not feeding us. You're keeping us on this bus and we're at the wrong hotel. We're done. And they're so mad. And we finally get back to the hotel and we get everybody tucked in. I get a phone call at one in the morning. Apparently poop was being thrown. That's another story for another time. I have to show up and deal with that. That's weird. Uh, it's a moment I'll never forget. Like this is a crazy weird story. I get back and I'm like, that trip was a disaster. Like I have like a page of, of notes of like, I need to do this differently next time and this differently and this needs to change. And I can't like, I would like, I have like feedback notes for myself. I have like all this stuff. I'm like, that was the craziest thing. I'm spending time with parents and phone calls. I'm spending time with like leaders, like just because of aftermath of all, like it was a thing. And I was like, man, this is my first trip and this went terribly. And I just keep waiting to get called into my boss's office. And then my boss goes, hey, Ryan, can you come by my office today? I need to talk with you. And I was like, oh, here we go. So I walk in and he goes, will you shut the door? And I went, oh, here we go, <laughs> right? What's about to happen? And he goes, grab a seat. And I said, okay. And I sit down and he goes, how are you? And I was like, can I be honest? Is that really what we're here to do? Just tell me. That's what I said. Can, can, just tell me, like whatever it is, whatever I need to change. Like I know I'm prepared to listen. Like whatever, I get it. Just, just tell me. Because I'm protecting myself, right? From whatever's about to happen. I'm not going to be naive. Okay, hit me with it. And he looks and he says, Ryan, you're doing a great job and we're giving you a raise. First time I ever got a race. I know. Well, they, thank you for that. But, but do we, isn't that how it goes? Can't we get so like used to life, the roller coaster of, of life, where you find yourself just protecting yourself from the, even the potential of hope? The potential that like there is something good here, that something is moving forward because you don't want to look like an idiot because too many things have happened because you've been staring into the face of problems for about a thousand different reasons. We get to a space where we start pushing hope away because we want to protect ourselves from it. But it cuts us off to a really beautiful experience of what it is to live life with God or to even live life in this world where God's actually a part of it 
and hasn't vacated the premises. And, and when you start to miss that, and that's so difficult, but it's easy, isn't it? Everybody can do it. It's kind of in all of us. The angel of the Lord says, greetings, favored one. And Mary looks and says, ah, crud. What's about to happen here, right? Luke chapter one, verse 30, it says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's a big deal. What the angel says to Mary here is massive. There's a couple of key things that are said. One, they say, you're gonna have a son, name him Jesus. Now, his real name, as far as Greek would go, right? That's our English way of saying it. His real name is Jesus, which was a Hebrew translation of the word Yeshua, which is what we call the word Joshua, which all that means is Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves, that's what this means. And so what they were saying is when you go to name your son, I want you to name him Yahweh saves. And we would look and be like, man, isn't that an indicator? Mary, you're gonna give birth to the Messiah, sort of. Jesus was a really common name in the first century. There are a whole heaps of Jesuses walking around uh, as far as first century Judaism goes. There are a lot of them. That didn't become a more rare name until much later. But if you listen, the stuff that the angel says to Mary after that just becomes thing after thing that all would have flagged as, oh my goodness, This is what we've been waiting for. Oh my goodness, the 400 years of silence are over. Oh my goodness, the whole story of the Old Testament and all that expectation and all those prophecies and all that moment and all those passages and generation after generation, all the hopes of all the people, it's about to happen. A son's gonna be born into the world. He'll be the son of the most high, a name used for God. The son of God is what's being said there, who will be a part of the throne of David, which is a prophecy that the one, that's one of the details they're looking for as far as who is this person. And his reign will never end. We're gonna set the world straight and it's gonna be forever, Mary. That's gonna come through you. Now, if I told any of you guys that, right? If you were a part of this story, how many of you go, oh my gosh, this is like the news of not just the century, but like centuries. This is, this is the great big story. This is the climactic moment. I'm going to be a part of it. I imagine at this moment that Mary's like jumping up and high-fiving an angel and wondering if that's okay. You know, like just, just ecstatic because this is what everyone has been waiting for her, her too, right? Like this is the thing because that's how we read it when your Old Testament ends and your New Testament begins. What does Mary say? What's Mary actually do? She's, well, a little bit nervous. So she starts out being troubled by this and then she goes, how's that even supposed to happen? That's her response, right? I think it's interesting. What ends up happening, again, if if hope has become hard to hold for some time and you've started to become a little disillusioned or a little hurt or weary or just all the things that feel like they're outside of you just start to take root inside of you as far as problems and things and you look at the world around you. You know what you start to do is even when hope's offered you, you become a little slow to grab it. You become just, you do. You you get to this spot where you just get to a place and you go, is that too good to be true? And can I really? And is this okay? And it's not because you're abnormal, it's because you're a human being who's been classically conditioned in a different direction. But we do, we get this way, right? When, when hope becomes difficult, when it becomes something we struggle to hold, when it feels a little bit impossible, we find that we don't reach for it that quickly. Instead, we turn to protection and caution. 
in those moments. I want you to think about this. If someone comes to your house tomorrow, knocks on your door and you answer the door and they're standing there and they look at you and they go, congratulations. We're just here to tell you that as part of either this, you know, new government initiative or new statewide initiative or, or new nonprofit thing that we've got going, we want you to start the new year out clean and fresh and we are gonna cover all of your debts, free and clear. How many of you are like, woohoo, yeah. No, you're not, come on. You know what you're gonna do? What's the catch? Whose program is this? Like, can you show, like, how does this work? So you just do this? Like, no one's immediately in that moment just gonna be like, hope arrived at my door and I just firmly grabbed a hold of it and that was, no. Why? Because when you feel this way, when hope becomes hard to hold, you just, you're a little cautious in how you reach out for it. There's a, there's a trepidation in you, like a, a hesitancy. And so you don't, you protect yourself first. When you go to a store, a retail store, and someone prints out an additional receipt and they go, hey, congratulations, you've been selected to do an online survey. If you do that, you're gonna save 30% off the next time you come in. You guys aren't like, that's amazing, that future savings. Thank you. You're not. There's a part of you that's like, how long will that take? If I put my name and stuff in there, are you guys gonna use this for like weird marketing? Am I gonna get a bunch of spam from you? Like, what is this? Because we're conditioned a certain way. We reach really slowly when hope is at our doorstep. And I know I'm talking about just like some random things. Here's a real moment that occurred. It was harder to watch. A student and I were talking at one point in time. It was a, a young man that was disconnected from his father. Hadn't seen him in quite some time. Had a very complicated relationship with his dad. And he wanted it to be better. And he found himself saying, I just wish I could see my dad or spend time with my dad. They hadn't connected in quite a long time. His dad came back into town for the holidays. And for the first time in a very long time, this young man was gonna get to spend the holidays with his father. And we'd prayed about this. We'd been talking about this. And so I looked at him and I was like, this is a big deal. I'm really excited. Like, this is what we've been praying about. I'm, I'm excited for you. Are you nervous? Are you excited? Like, talk to me about it. You know, what's going on? And the student looked back at me, looked back at me without a smile on his face and just said, well, we'll see if it actually happens first protection, reach slowly, don't trust it. Do you feel that in us? It's easy, isn't it? This is all of us. When hope has become hard to hold, we reach for it slowly, skeptically, cautiously because we don't wanna have our hopes dashed because you don't wanna be the person who like an idiot grabbed a hold of hope only to see it fall to the ground afterwards and find yourself staring at people around you and them staring back at you or you having to look yourself in the mirror. Sometimes we protect ourselves from hope. I keep saying that, but do you see the irony of that? Do you see how crazy that can sound? We protect ourselves from hope. Mary responds to the good news of the angel. Luke first, or chapter one, verse 34, she says, she doesn't go, yes, no high five. She goes, how will this be since I am a virgin? Like, you got to get your facts straight, sir. <laughs> like, there's something here that's not quite right. Wait, how's this going to work? Are you messing with me? Have you not seen, like, my situation? I know how, like, babies are formed and there's a piece that's missing. And so I don't think this adds up. Like, how, how is this going to work? The angel responds. Verse 35 says, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is also called barren. Meaning you're gonna see more good and beautiful things even around you just as a sign that like this is possible and true. And then verse 37 is so significant. The angel looks to Mary and says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now this whole passage we just read is a big deal. But here's the truth. Mary goes, how is this even possible? And the angel goes, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will take care of it. And I just gotta imagine if I'm Mary, I'm like, thanks chief. 
And, and it's because I have no idea what that means. I'm like, okay, cool. I feel no more secure or certain than I did previously. Like, I don't know what, that's, I've never experienced anything like that. I don't understand how this is. And it's not until you get down to verse 37 that finally, when you see those words, for nothing will be impossible for God, that you see the angel offers Mary a completely different way to look at the world around her and to look at her world. And the story from here on out just starts to shift. And it becomes this really, really beautiful thing. For nothing will be impossible with God. Well, what about the Roman Empire? It's the largest and most dominant force in the world. Are they just gonna back down and be like, cool, make a way for a new Messiah? <laughs> no, but for nothing will be impossible with God. Okay, well, what about all the people who are tired of waiting? It's been 400 years of silence and some of them are just, they're, not, they're like not even willing to hold hope. They're gonna look at me like a liar. Like who's gonna believe a child like this is gonna come from me, from poor town in Nazareth, from somebody who was supposed to be married? Like, what do you mean? For nothing will be impossible with God. Okay, but I know how the human body works. There's things that haven't happened and I don't even know how that's supposed to happen. This whole thing sounds crazy. For nothing will be impossible for God. See, this becomes a moment where the angel's speaking to Mary and he sees that her perspective is defensive. He sees that her perspective is skeptical. He sees that hope is hard to hold and even when offered, she's reaching for it cautiously. And he just reminds her, you live and breathe and exist in a world where the God who created the universe still permeates it. He's still here in the midst of all of this, which means there are possibilities all around us. Don't cut yourself off from this, Mary. Isn't that beautiful? And then do you know what happens? Nothing. Isn't that weird? For me, I think this is the part of the story where I go, all right, awesome. Like, and then she got pregnant and then there was a star and then there were shepherds and wise men and there was this fanfare and everybody just knew like, man, the Messiah is born and then Jesus just lived this powerful life where he marched forward and all these things and everybody, it just like cleared a path and no, we miss this because at Christmas time we gather together and we go, we're here to celebrate the hope of the world. And that is true. The birth of Christ is the entrance of the hope of the world into humanity in this climactic moment in human history. And it is powerful. It is beautiful. It is true. But Jesus didn't begin his ministry for 30 years, you guys. Do you know that? It took 30 years before water was ever turned into wine. It took 30 years before the sick were ever healed, before the blind could see and the lame could walk. It took 30 years before the masses were fed in miraculous ways. It took 30 years before the dead were raised and, and sins forgiven. It took 33 years before there was ever a cross, a death, and a resurrection. Mary turns and decides that she's gonna hold on to hope. She reaches out and she grabs a hold of hope in this particular moment. But you know what changes in this world? Nothing. Because the truth is, is after that moment, Mary has the same problems that she had before. The world doesn't suddenly change around Mary in a way that Mary looks and goes, well, the world changed. I'm gonna grab a hold of hope now. This has occurred. The problems she faces don't go away. The skepticism and frustration of the culture around her doesn't suddenly just vacate the premises and leaves. And the Romans don't suddenly go, ah, we've had some second thoughts. We want to pave the way for Mary's son. Like none of this happens. Nothing changes in that moment. And yet Mary makes a decision. And this is so key when it comes to hope. She makes a decision. She reaches out and she chooses to grab a hold of hope. Luke chapter one, verse 38 says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Meaning this, I trust the 
beautiful future that you have described. I trust the words that you've been speaking. I'll hold on to that. I'll grab a hold of this hope and hold it with me, right? May it be unto me as you have spoken. And then the angel departs from her. Here's what's so significant. And I want you to catch this. And if you've tuned out because you got lost along like narratives and historical facts and things along the way, it's okay. Here's the thing. The world didn't have to change in order for Mary to hold on to hope. She just had to trust that with God, all things are possible and that that's enough to change the world. Do you see? And I I wanted to talk on this today because I just wanted to remind us of this particular point. The world didn't have to look any different, but Mary chose to hold on to a hope that it could and because of God that it would. And consequently, this changes everything. You know what's crazy about this? Mary holds that hope with just a very small pocket of people for about 30 years years before anybody else opens their heart and understanding to even hold it. Think of how long that is. Think how powerful that is. And then after Mary comes a group of 12 disciples. And after a group of 12 disciples, you want to hear the craziest part? Here we now stand today and you guys are sitting in a church, a Christian church where we put our our hope in Christ. And 2.2 billion people have proclaimed to have put their hope in Christ in the world today. And it all starts with a 13-year-old girl during a time where no one wanted to hold hope and nobody thought it was even available to them around her making the choice to hold it for herself. She didn't need the world to change. She held hope and it started to change the world, friends. Do you see that? It is, it's a beautiful thing. And so I just look for each of us. That's us. Who but the church? Who but the church would hold hope right now? I don't blame the world looking around and just being like, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that make life so complicated right now. And there's just an onslaught of narratives and magazines and news things and all sorts of things that just can make it like the outcome of all of this bleak. But friends, we are not people who are waiting for 400 years amidst the silence of God, wondering when the Messiah will be born. We're people who are born now, 2000 years later, proclaiming the goodness and the grace and the love and the hope of one who already was. Hope entered the world and then didn't vacate the premises, but now makes his home in you. Now lives and dwells in you. Now you become the evidence, the living, breathing proof that God can breathe new life into an old heart and transform you from the inside out. You carry the very hope of the world. So I think I'm asking you as a church, as a group of people, wherever you find yourselves this holiday season, whatever celebration comes your way, that you would hold on to real hope as a gift for yourself, as a gift for your friends, and as a gift to the world around you. The world doesn't need to change. You get to be a part of something absolutely beautiful that has changed the world from the moment it began. Isn't that incredible? That's for you. It's for me. So I just, I want to leave you with two challenges. I probably talked too long. I want to leave you with two challenges. One is open yourself up this season. Will you do that? And when I say this season, I don't mean the month of December. Start now and hold this. Open yourself up to a God of possibility. When we talk about impossibility, right? When it says for nothing is impossible with God, what we're saying in those moments is the world is shrunk down to this is just how it is and this is what it is and that's how it's gonna stay. And all the possibilities and all the doors and all the things just shut around you because now you're just kind of locked in this room. God's a God who kicks down doors, who cracks the, the door open in moments that you never thought, who creates possibility where none existed previously. All I wanna challenge you to Not as to be, don't go, I'm not telling you, go be a ridiculous person who believes insane things. And that's not what I'm getting at. All I'm saying is just believe in a God of possibility. Believe in a God who's bigger than the walls around you. 
to put your faith in a God who actually dwelt among us, lives and rises from the dead, who conquers the grave. We believe in this from the get-go, guys. We believe in a God who is part of a virgin birth. Like, that's not possible. Tell it is. Believe in a God who cracks the doors open in history, in these moments, and in your life and in the world around you too. I don't know what it is for some of you, but I know you need that. I'm not asking you to be ridiculous. I just want to say, I'm not asking you to suddenly go out and just believe in anything or to be unrealistic or any of those things. I'm just asking you to recognize that God hasn't vacated the premises that Christ is in and through and with you and see what gift that brings to you and to the world around you this Christmas and in the months to come. And the second thing is this, make the choice, and I mean that, the actual choice to hold hope if you're waiting for the world around you to change so that you can grab a hold of something, I just don't think it's gonna do it for you. And I'm gonna be really honest, the moment it changes, you're gonna be like, cool, I have hope. And then it's gonna change again at some point in time and you're gonna lose all your hope and you're gonna be on a roller coaster ride that teaches you to push hope away and to protect yourself from it. There is a constant good and beautiful thing called the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And it's hope, that hope that he is loving and leading the world forward, starting with you and the person next to you, starting with Mary back all the way in the first century, moving all the way forward, starting with promises in the Old Testament with a man named Abraham. From the very beginning, friends, there's a story of hope, of love and grace and relationship that has been moving through human history. Hold on to it. It's yours. It's the real gift that exists beneath all the gifts this Christmas. It's the real thing that's existed there all along. And just, you don't have to wait for everything to change. You can reach out and just hold it for yourself and claim it and live it and embrace it and open your eyes to the beautiful possibilities around you. And here's what I believe. I believe that will be a gift for your own life because man does hope become a transformational way to live your life. It repaints your landscape. It's amazing. It becomes a gift for the people around you. There's lots of people around you that need hope and your hope is contagious. You know, you can hold hope for them and that becomes a powerful endeavor and a gift this time of year. But thirdly, it's a gift to the world. One person holding hope can do an immense amount of things in this world when God gets in and through and behind all of that. Do you see? That's the Christmas story. And it's a beautiful thing, friends. Merry Christmas, let's pray. God, we come before you. And I just thank you, Lord, for hope. I do, I just, God, and I know some people in here, it's probably hard right now. I don't know why, I don't know what, I don't know what they're walking through, but I know it is. And Lord, I just pray that they wouldn't protect themselves from hope. Lord, reach into the midst of their situation, reach into the midst of their heart right now. And even if nothing changes, Lord, Breathe hope into their life. Breathe your love and your grace and your goodness into your life. I thank you that Christ is not dead, but alive and that that tethers us forward, God. So hold us as we hold on to you. And Lord, I pray that we as a church might grasp this, that we can become a beautiful gift to the world around us at a time that I think people need it. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.